0: This morning we're going to continue our sermon series, The Beginning of the End, and the bigger context is that in the in the world of new churches that we see in the New Testament, there comes a time where there's a transition, where all the baby pictures have been taken, and it's time for the church to begin acting in different ways, in more mature ways, and we've been studying through the book of Titus to identify what those methods were in the first century church, and then applying them directly to to River Church, and then finally to ourselves and the families as well. And this morning's passage is going to be from Titus, of course, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and if I had to just kind of summarize those 10 verses that we're going to read in just a moment, I would use the phrase, the measure of a man. Paul is going to share with Titus, in his opinion, what sound teaching actually looks like in the life of a Christian church. Now, we know when it comes to guys, especially the measure of a man is usually referring to our physical height, and it kind of matters to guys. Uh, It's important to us. We like being tall. We just do. And uh, there have only been two times in my life where I've been truly surprised by my actual measurements. Uh, The first time was when I learned that when I was born, I weighed 11 pounds, 3 ounces, I, I was the largest child I've ever heard of. Now, maybe you've heard of larger children. Uh, so to this day, however, that means my mom will walk up to me at different times and just smack me right in the face. I mean, she will just, because I deserve it. Because nobody has business being that large as a child. Thankfully, our children were not that large. And so my wife has no reason to hit any of us for which we are all over 11 pounds at birth. The second time that my actual physical measurements surprised me was this past Tuesday. I have a life insurance policy which is lapsing and so I'm renewing that life insurance policy. And so the nurse came to the house and of course she drew some blood and she measured my blood pressure and then my height and my weight. And I didn't like the way she did it at all. Well, it started off good because I was standing on a carpet in our, in our study and I had my shoes on. And so I thought, okay, well, this is cool. And so I found out that I'm actually an inch and a half taller than I thought I was. She measured me at 5'11". Never in my life have I been 5'11". I am 5'9 half all day long. That's just my height. But according to her measurement, I was 5'11". And I said, well good, because this is gonna work out really well with the whole BMI thing. The problem is that she then took out her scale, put it on the same carpet, and wearing the same shoes and clothes, I stepped on the scale and I thought, I don't weigh that much. I, that is not my actual measurement. I'm not even going to tell you what it was, you can just guess, but it was an awful lot. And so what I thought was going to be a very favorable BMI means I'm just slightly under obese, according to her measurements. And so for the second time in my life, I tipped the scales at whatever it was, I tipped the scales and was surprised at my actual physical uh, measurements. The measure of a man. What Titus is going to learn from Paul is what is Paul actually looking for in the life of a believer. And Paul does something that he doesn't do very often in the New Testament, is that he doesn't refer to us as the children of God or the people of God or the church. He actually refers to old guys, old ladies, Young women and young men. He breaks it right down by demographic. Because he knows that in our different times of life, we know different things, we behave differently, and as men and women of God, that we should be acting differently as well. And so Paul breaks it down by demographic, and he shares with Titus what the teaching of God, what the sound doctrine, what the sound teaching of God should actually look like in the life of a first century member, of a church in Crete. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, join me in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But you must say the things that are consistent with sound or healthy teaching. The word sound or healthy is repeated in the text about four times, and the word teaching or doctrine is repeated in the text about six. And so the big idea, the big theme of these ten verses is healthy or sound teaching should look like healthy or sound living. And here's specifically what it should look like. Older men. Okay, Josh, how old is old in the first century church? Any guesses? When Paul says older men, how old, in that culture, in that context, what is the Greek word actually referring to there? Thoughts, ideas? Yeah, it is over 30. Specifically, anyone over the age of 40 Considered in this text old older men now many of us would think back to when we were in our 40s and think no, I was not old then now I am old but when I was in my 40s I am not old, however, last expectancies being what they were in the first century church and this goes for the women too it's the same idea ladies in the first century church if you're over 40 years of age You are old. Old, 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 old. Older men, over 40, are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound, there's that word again, in faith, love, and endurance. He links older men with older women with younger men and younger women with the same phrase, in the same way. And so it's not that the only people in the New Testament church that are supposed to be marked by faith and love and endurance and level-headedness are just the old men. Uh, However, these concepts are to be found in everyone who is a person of faith. That's why he links it in the same way, in the same way, in the same way. You'll see that in the text as well. But when he speaks specifically to older men, guys over the age of 40, these are the things that he would expect to see. As a result of healthy or sound teaching, this is what healthy or sound living should look like in the life of an older man. And then in the same way, continuing in verse 3, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. I don't do this very often, but this is so interesting to me and just kind of funny that, I, I'm going to share it with you. I don't normally, I, I, I look into the original languages using software that I have and training and blah, blah, blah. I don't usually refer to the Greek or the Hebrew at all because I never want you to feel that if you don't understand an ancient language that you can't understand God's Word for today. That's just not true. But in this case, it, it's so funny. Uh, literally, the Greek text says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior. Not drunk devil women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh I think. I think these what drunk devil women? Yeah, addicted drunk devil women is is what the text says. The word that is translated slanderous is the Greek word diabolos. Do the math. Do not be. Older women should not be drunken devil women, but rather they should be, and the word has priestess connotations. Older women should be priestess teachers in the home, not older drunken devil women. Uh, Because the job of the devil in the New Testament isn't, the, the way his pure evil manifests itself is saying nasty things about people that aren't true. And so Paul is saying that older women should not say nasty things about people that are not true. If they do, it's like the devil. That's what the devil does. That's his primary evil is the accusation of the saints, right? The slandering of the saints. Saying things that are not true about the saints. So the, the, a woman who has, has sound teaching and is living in a sound, healthy way are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, diabolos, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women, women under 40, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. Uh, So he goes back to that slandered idea. So that people can't say bad things that aren't true about the sound teaching of the gospel, we're supposed to be very careful with our words. And it's not just women, right? In the same way. So this goes for older men, it goes for younger women, it goes for younger men as well. That nobody has the right to slander or say nasty things that are not true about people, but specifically it is commanded directly to the older women because we don't want to give anyone cause to then slander the gospel or the nature of the New Testament church. And then he repeats himself in the same way, verse 6. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. (laughs) Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound, there's the word again, healthy, beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. You can also see, uh, besides the major theme in this text, which is healthy teaching reflects in healthy living, or sound teaching reflects in sound living, that the other subsidiary theme is the reputation of the church is going to be represented by how we live. Therefore, link it to sound doctrine and sound teaching. Let there be no disparity between sound teaching and sound living so that the reputation of the church uh, any accusations made against it would just fall away, because there's no way that they could be true. That the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. And then finally, in verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything, and to be well pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So there's a lot that can be talked about in that text. There is some stuff in that text that probably fits better in the first century church, such as the whole idea of slaves. However, it's common for us now to take whatever Paul says to slaves and try to transfer it to the workplace. Part of that works, part of that doesn't, and that's a great conversation to have this week in your small group, trying to wrestle through, well, what does that mean as someone who is paid to provide a service? For me to fulfill these obligations that Paul commands to slaves. How may I be submissive to my boss? How may I be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing? How may I demonstrate utter faithfulness, and interestingly enough, of the different demographics that are listed, older guys, older women, young men, and of course young women are included in this as well, it is slaves, those that we would consider to have the least authority, the least power. The least self-determination that Paul uses a very unique word that's only used once in this passage, and that is that slaves may adorn the message of the gospel. Literally, decorate it. That a slave, the lowest person of the ones that are listed, older men, older women, and then young men and women, that it is, slaves are the ones that Paul says have the opportunity To beautify the gospel. And you can make the case, have the opportunity to beautify the gospel in ways that older men and older women and younger men and younger women who are free or not slaves can't do. That is a fascinating concept. And and what a great, another great question to wrestle through in your small groups this week how do I adorn or decorate the gospel? How do I take something that is beautiful beyond compare, priceless beyond all price, and make it even more attractive and the answer is when we contextualize it through our own testimony so that is a fantastic concept that we can do that even if we don't consider ourselves a person of authority at all we're not a husband we're not a a wife we're not a dad we're not a mom You, you know maybe we're just a kid living at home so like great what does this text have to do with me well you're a slave of your parents that's Biblically, that's where you fit into this text. And all the parents said, amen. And I say, down, slander, devil, she-devils. Like, be nice to your children. And, and so, children, you know, maybe you're identifying with, I don't really have any authority except over my own body. Even as a child, to wrestle with that question, how do I live under the authority of my parents, but yet beautify the gospel? Something that is beautiful beyond compare, and more precious beyond price. How can I actually make it attractive, decorate it and the answer is through the beauty of your own contextualization what does the gospel look like in your life we have the power even those of us with no glory to beautify or adorn the teaching of god our savior in everything Tim Lundstrom next week is going to pick up the text and be preaching for me and so I just kind of wanted to bring us through this text quickly this morning pointing out some of the big points Uh, that I feel that we're going to now turn the corner a little bit in the time that we have remaining and try now that we've identified the issues that were in the first century church. We know that false teaching was a thing, and in response to false teaching, Paul commands Titus to appoint elders, and one of the chief roles of an elder is to say this is the right way, this is the wrong way, walk in the right way, stay away from the wrong way, and we see the qualifications for those people who are called to do that, and then he gets even more specific Talks about what is good teaching, and that's what we looked at last week. And what does this good teaching actually look like in the life of a first century Christian? Very specifically, this is what it looks like. And so now the question for us this morning is, what is Jesus saying to River Church? What is the measurement of our church? First of all, what are the things that we're going to measure? What are the things that we look for in a church that's coming up on our uh, fourth birthday and how are we doing in those areas and and, and in those areas how do we need to end the beginning? That we started off a certain way and that was great, but now that we're more established in our regular meetings and in our attendance, it's time we've taken all of our baby pictures. What are the things that when we see from this text that we can apply to our own experience as a church plant? I've identified five different concepts, stages if you will, that we've kind of developed through in a chronological or linear fashion beginning on November 2nd, 2014. And of course, and I'd like to share those five, uh, I call them the core elements of our DNA. If you were to cut River Church into little pieces, you would find that each of these things plays a critical role. And my supposition is, is that if you were to remove one of these pieces, we wouldn't be who we are today. That each of these pieces was a core part of our development and it was, these were things that the Lord led us through, not things that I determined in my wisdom as a pastor that should be a part of our core DNA. This is just how the Lord has led us. And so I'm not saying this is a temple for every new church. I'm just saying this is what happened to us, that these are the core elements of our DNA. That if we're going to measure ourselves this morning, looking at year four coming up, we're going to celebrate it on November 4th, how do we measure up in these four, five areas rather, that the Lord has led us through? Now, we're looking now at the life of a church, not the life of an individual like Paul was looking at in Titus's case. The first core element of our DNA, we talked about this last week, evangelism and outreach. And I shared with you last week that it's not just church plants, but every church lives or dies by their ability, their heart for, their effectiveness at evangelism and outreach. It's something that we hope will always be a critical part of our DNA here at River Church. We will, in every opportunity that we have whether to invite people to come and see or to go and tell in the community, we will share the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that is found in repentant faith in Jesus. Evangelism and outreach, a core part of our DNA. How are we doing in evangelism and outreach? This is an idea that we can measure the measure of a man. If Paul were to write a letter to one of us today about River Church, I'm I'm saying humbly that possibly he would challenge us in our heart for evangelism and outreach, that it would never grow cold. The second, uh, once we got established and started having regular church services, Um, we started having volunteer leaders come because they saw the desperate need for people to be responsible for various areas of our church that the existing leadership at the time, which was basically us and the Thompsons, couldn't do all the things and so we needed help and so the Lord called Different folks in our church. Um, I met with them just a couple of weeks ago and shared my love for them and, and gave them gifts and just recognized what a blessing they are that uh, God has provided us with leadership here at River Church. Vince leads the worship, the worship team. Tyler and Audrey lead River Kids. My friend Sarah is in charge of keeping track of the books. Kevin and Jen are in charge of the welcome centers. Autumn is in charge of hospitality team, Jeff is in charge of setting up and tearing down everything, Uh, Jeremy is in charge of small groups, and the visual representations are the artwork that comes along with River Church, and then Justin, of course, is helping us lead River Youth. Without these guys, uh, we wouldn't be able to grow or maintain our ministry. so this is an area that uh, is a core part of our DNA, that the Lord has blessed us with. Leadership. How are we doing in the category of leadership? We're always going to need people to lead us in ministry. The third core element of our DNA. So the first thing that happened was evangelism and outreach. That's how we planted the church. Very quickly, people saw the desperate need that we had for leaders. And so leaders came and joined us as they started attending services. The third thing that we measure in the life of a new church is that if a new church plant does not have financial autonomy by year five, They will never have financial autonomy. They're always going to need an infusion of capital from other kind-hearted individuals or organizations to, to pay their bills. And so one of the chief metrics of measuring a new church is can they meet their own financial needs from within their own body? Are they financially autonomous? We met that criteria a year ago. For the first three years of River Church, we received financial assistance through the Southern Baptist, through the Baptist Convention of New England. And for the first two years, uh, the Georges received assistance from the church that sent me, High Point Church in Thompson, Connecticut. All that financial assistance ended uh, about a year or so ago, and we've got money in the bank. And so, praise the Lord, we are financially autonomous, but it's an important metric that we should be aware of when you're dealing with a new church. Can we pay our own bills? Are God's saints faithful to actually fund the work of the ministry in their own lives. The fourth dynamic that happened uh, this time last year was we saw the need for consistent youth programming, that it was time to grow beyond just having a Sunday morning service and, and with River Kids, that we had to be providing opportunities for our young men and women to come together and, and learn from each other and have biblical principles and times of fellowship and prayer and fun. And so we started Second Sundays. And we, we bootstrapped it, right? We, we started it just the way we started, just by everything else. I identified 12 families that I thought wouldn't tell me no. I sent them letters, and I said, I want to send all the children your way once a month. You feed them, and I will keep them from destroying your property and try to impart some godly wisdom in their lives. So that we have some godly input, at least on a monthly basis, so that when families are coming through River Church and they ask about youth programming, yes, we do. And so we started meeting monthly, and then the Lord blessed us with Justin, and now we meet weekly at the lifeboat on the property. So, God has blessed us with consistent youth programming. If you're going another metric of church health as you plant, is are you able to take care of the kids that God has blessed you with? Not just the little ones on a Sunday morning, but the ones who are making important life decisions as middle school and high school students. And finally, our most recent core part of our DNA, it is time for us to have consistent and regular small groups. It's time for us to have times together where we can pray for each other specifically by name, that we can have ongoing relationships and conversations with each other, centered on God's word, that we can meet each other's needs in times of illness or difficulty or vehicle failures or who knows what can happen in real life, or when you wake up and the basement is flooded. We all have family, and it's not our job as a new church to take the role of our uh, family that God has blessed us with. However, our church family is actually supposed to function like a family, and there are times where the church needs to step up and love one of its own. And the only way we can do that is if we know what's going on a little bit. And so that happens when we are able to share God's word with each other, pray with each other, encourage each other on a week-by-week basis throughout the month, and grow together as Christians. The five elements of our core DNA. I had an opportunity a month ago to have one of the biggest adventures of my life. I've been waiting for this adventure for 30 years. Years And that adventure was actually buying a motorcycle, which I ended up buying, and I've now put about 700 miles on in the past three and a half weeks. I've never been happier, I've never been better adjusted, I've never been a nicer guy to be around than I have the past three and a half weeks. And you might say, Josh, you've got a long way to go. And I say, I agree, I need to spend more time on my motorcycle. That's what I would say to that So I went on the adventure of my life because I've been researching for about 30 years which motorcycle I wanted, I found it. It was in the suburb of Boston, the price was right, it's just a few thousand dollars, an older motorcycle with some miles. But I've never bought a motorcycle before and I needed to know that since I'm making this important decision, I'm a set it and forget it kind of guy, I'm not looking to shop for motorcycles for the rest of my life, how do I actually know that I'm buying something worth having? How am I actually going to know that I am buying the motorcycle of my dreams? Because, again, I've never spent time around motorcycles. I've never ridden motorcycles. I've just had a passionate love for them for as long as I can remember. I'm not saying it's normal. I'm just saying it is. And so finally got to a place where I could make the purchase. And while I'm driving to the suburb of Boston on September 24th, the day after the Tough Buddy, the adventure of my life, I'm asking myself, I know that I'm in love with the pictures, like, that's easy, but how am I actually going to know if this thing is worth acquiring and being the motorcycle that I will have to hold and to cherish and to ride till death do us part? Again, weird and a little bit creepy, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying it is. And so on the way up to go buy this motorcycle, or at least assess this motorcycle, I decided I'm not going to turn myself into a magical motorcycle mechanic between here and Boston, but you know what I can do? I can engage the man who has owned the motorcycle for years. And so what I did is I, when I got to this guy's house and he came out to meet me, I purposely didn't look at the motorcycle at all. I ignored it. It was sitting right in the middle of his garage. I ignored it for the first 20 or 30 minutes. I literally did not look or touch the thing at all. I just needed to know the guy. Because I figured if I could get a sense for the guy, then I know everything I need to know about the motorcycle. The guy happens to be a mechanic for JetBlue. He happened to have an immaculate garage with a hydraulic press, which means something to a guy. Having some maintenance training, you don't just casually come by a hydraulic press. If you have a hydraulic press, that means you are servicing your own bearings, which means you are doing your own overhauls. Which means you know how cylinders work, and how crankshafts work, and how camshafts work. When a guy with some maintenance training, which I happen to have, walks into a garage, and it's neat and organized, and there's a a hydraulic press, I'm not a guy that actually knows what he's doing. And he works for JetBlue, maintaining aircraft. Again, something I know a little bit about. Needless to say, we hit it off thick as feet. And we made new friends that day. And then I asked him the most important question I could ask him after we got to swap war stories about aircraft and tools and blah, 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 still having never looked at the motorcycle. I asked him this one question. I looked for his initial response. I said, would you be willing to start up and ride your motorcycle for me so I can hear it? A smile or a frown? He started smiling. Yeah, I'd love to. Hopped on his bike, fired it up, rode down the road. And he was gone. I was like, oh no, he fell in love with his bike again. He's going to go hide it somewhere and walk back. And now I'm not going to have it. And now I know it's the bike. He's the guy. He has nothing to hide from me. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to maintenance procedures. And he's perfectly willing to ride his motorcycle. I just know if he's perfectly willing to ever come back. So that I can load it up in a trailer. And I can own it and be rationally adjusted again. But he did come back. And then I spent some time with the motorcycle. Enough to talk him down a little bit. Because that's how these things go. You see, the measure of a man is does he live by his own teaching and principles? When it comes to measuring a man by New Testament standards, are we willing to actually have our lives look like the way we know they're supposed to? When it comes to our engagement in a local church, are we actually engaged in these things or do we just talk a good game? But when challenged to actually live by these principles, does a smile light on our face? And is it obvious that we find life and joy and contentment and healing in an actual relationship with our Savior when we think about, in the context of her church, evangelism and outreach? Or is it a chore? When we think about ministry opportunities. Or is it a drudge that we're not willing to share with somebody else because we would never want to torment them that way? Is it, a, is it a joy when we think about the privilege that we have to participate in the expenses of the ministry? Is it a joy when we think about the fact that our children are going to get to stay up all night and get to have, invite their friends to a gospel outreach? Is it a joy, is it something we're actually willing to ride or walk with or run with the idea of small groups or we just like to talk about them? Or is this something that we're actually looking forward to Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday this week, whenever your small group in your area meets? You see, by way of conclusion, what is Jesus saying to us as individuals? And Vince, you can bring your theme back up at this time. How do we measure up? Do we like to just talk about these important things that are the core elements of River Church's DNA? Do we agree with them in our minds? Do they actually have a role in our life? When when we mention these five core elements of River Church, or these things that you're excited about, or are they drudgeries? Or are they things that you're engaged in, or is this the first time you've ever encountered these five principles that you had no idea that you know matters of financial integrity or leadership or evangelism and outreach were an important part of being a part of River Church? It's time. In this time of application, personally, as men and women of faith, as family leaders, even if we're slaves, even if we're children, and feel like we're only responsible for ourselves, how do we adorn, how do we decorate, how do we make attractional, how do we beautify the teaching of Jesus Christ personally as we wrestle with these five core elements of our DNA? Because if we find ourselves in a position where we want more of God's presence, where we want more of God's power, where we're crying out that the Holy Spirit would answer a specific need, prayer, wish, or desire in our lives, and yet we're not engaged in any of these core elements of our church, isn't it possible that we're missing the answer? Isn't it possible that when God's things get together, that one has a word, that one has a prayer, that one has a gift for healing, that one has an excess of finances, that the needs of the saints are actually met in the context of the saints? Isn't it possible that the answer to our prayer, as we're crying out to the Holy Spirit to be more real, to be more powerful, to be more evident in our lives, that the answer is in a ministry relationship under a a volunteer leader? Or is the answer to our financial freedom actually identifying a percentage and honoring the Lord with it? Or is the answer in the context of investing ourselves in young people in our church, or in a small group, or an evangelist in our church. And I would say, yeah, if we're crying out for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives in response to something that needs to be set right, wouldn't the Lord answer that prayer through the context of another person in our church that has heard of the help in the way that we're crying out for? Yeah. And so it's time to measure up. It's time to answer the question, how are we engaged in the life of our local Church? these five core elements of our DNA alive and well on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis because the bottom line is there is a need in your life that God is trying to answer in this context or you're the answer to someone's prayer. How encouraging is that when you find out through engaging in your local church that you actually imparted a of the Holy Spirit in the life of another believer because you had an opportunity to engage and hear what's going on. That's my desire for us. As we look at what the measure of a man is in the first century church, those principles, of course, are so important to us as moms and dads and children, but to also take a step back and look at us as an organization. How are we doing? How are we meeting these five different ways of measuring a new church and what is our engagement in them as well? It's time to measure up. It's time to see how we're doing knowing that it's time to end not being engaged. Pray. We don't have to be a part of all five elements of those four things about church, but we do need to be part of some of them, or else we have to ask the question, are we a part of it at all? Do we have any hope of having our prayers answered if we have separated ourselves from the fellowship of the saints in these five critical areas? So I'm going to wrap up our time together in a brief word of prayer. we we'll opportunity to work to the team one more time. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the guidance that we find in your word. Father, I pray at the beginning of our time together this morning that through the power of your spirit we would each feel like we heard directly from you. Whether it was in worship and lifting up your name in praise through a time of prayer, or when we opened up your word and opened those ten verses to see what the measure of a man or a woman or a child was in the first century church. Father, would you through the power of your word and our time together, work in our lives answer our prayers, would you encourage us to take a step forward to engage the church in a new way, specifically one of these five ways that we've found to be so critical in our development as we look forward to the next five years. We ask these things in Jesus' name.